0: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming to you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a cool program for you all today. I have no doubt you will learn, grow, and be inspired by today's show. Before we get into our main event, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and subscribe. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any of our new shows. And it makes the algorithm God's happy, which helps us. So thanks for that. Also, be sure to visit our website, notrealart.com. Sign up for our newsletter to keep your finger on the pulse of everything we're doing here at Not Real Art for artists and art lovers. A lot of great stuff there on the website. You'll see, you'll get uh, free educational videos. You can sign up for our artist grant for the chance to receive $2,000. You can buy affordable original contemporary art through our partnership with Sugar Press. And you can become a supporter through Patreon if you want. So be sure to check out our website today for all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Okay, art lovers. Today, we've got a special guest, a true blue renaissance man, brilliant entrepreneur, artist, and all-around nice guy. I learned about our guest today through an email I got from a publicist who was Apparently, a fan of our podcast and wanted to have their client on our podcast. And so, when I took a look at who they were representing and got a better sense of what this person was up to, I said, Hell yeah. This is exactly the kind of artist and entrepreneur that we want here on the Not Real Art podcast to help promote and share their story with the wide, wide world. There's a sense of shared values here. The work that Michael Clements is doing with his Art Jams organization out of Washington, D.C., and his Art Box product line is exactly the kind of business that we love to hear about because it helps make the world a more creative place. And that's what we need, isn't it? What Michael Clements is doing with Art Jams and with Art Box helps to spread the love and helps to empower everybody to be more creative and have fun and express their inner artist. And so anybody that shares our values, anybody that's trying to make the world a more creative place, it's absolutely, it's, they're like family right out of the gate. It's like family. So of course I want to have Michael on the show and talk about the great work he's doing out there in DC. And so we sort of start the interview as strangers and then we end it with like making plans for getting together because, you know, we hit it off and, It was just, you know, it was so easy to talk to and it was so much fun. And when you meet a stranger, but you realize you have so much in common, like that's like magic, right? So today's episode is magical because you'll hear Michael and I chop it up, get to know each other and laugh a lot as we talk about the ups and downs of being an artist, of being an entrepreneur, of working in the arts, but of course, navigating a pandemic. You'll hear about how he had to pivot and how he had to adjust. His business with multiple locations in DC and then the pandemic hit and what was he going to do? But Michael's one of these really special human beings who has followed his own path throughout life, marching to the beat of his own drummer and seeking adventure and wherever it leads him, just following his creative muse. And so he's one of these Swiss army knives, creative people, multidisciplinary creative people who just sort of has lots of tools in their toolbox and can do a lot of amazing, beautiful things with those tools. And so Michael's just a a real prolific, creative mind. I love his title, Chief Creative Enabler. And so he's enabling a great conversation today on the Not Real Art podcast. So we're just thrilled to have him. And without further ado, let's get into this episode and hear from the founder and chief creative enabler of Art Jams and Artbox, Artjams.com with the Z, Z, A-R-T-J-M-A-M-Z.com, the one and only Michael Clements. Here we go. Michael Clements, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Good, man. I'm so glad to see you. I'm, I'm glad we were able to pull this off today. I know,
1: right? That's what we do. The creatives, we just like turn on a dime. We're ready to go.
0: (laughs) We do, we do. I mean, because I mean, you're back east. You're in DC, right? I'm I'm on the West Coast here in LA, and so you know, coordinating logistics can sometimes be challenging. But you've been so flexible and patient and easy to work with. So I'm just so grateful. Thanks for putting up with our uh, crazy chaos over here. Oh my gosh, I feel like I live in a state of chaos anyway, controlled chaos. But I really appreciate the space and the invite. These people that live these organized Type A lives, you know, God bless them. But uh, I'm not one of them. <laughs> my wife is, but not me. Up <laughs> at four in the morning to go jogging, to clear the head, you know, type of thing. <laughs> I live vicariously through those people as I sleep off my hangover. You know, <laughs> <laughs> night people of the world, rejoice and unite. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm so grateful to meet you today and and have you on the show because, like so many folks in our community of artists. We share a set of uh, values and we're kind of in this business to use the power of art and creativity to better society and lift up our communities and, and help people connect with their inner artist no matter what. And what your organization does at Art Jams and then you have your exciting art box project that we'll talk about. So I wanted to have you on because, you know, you're back east in DC, actually doing a lot of the work that we do over here in terms of helping people connect through the power of art and, and creativity. And and so what's your origin story, man? I mean, how did you get started? Like, take us back. Well, it,
1: I have had a couple different lives when it comes to creativity, that's for sure. And our champs was not something that came about. I mean, that we started Art Ams 11 years ago, right? And our mission is to make the world a more creative place. And we do that, two ways. First, we get artists doing what they're trained to do. And that is create. And we pay them and we pay them well. Our artists are local artists, our W2 employees. We do things like 401k matching, you know, and benefits. And because a lot of times artists, they're in the gig economy and they don't have that opportunity to have like a W2 job. The second way we make the world more creative is just by getting people engaged in art we do that through art classes two hour art classes virtual in person so that was kind of something that i started 10 years ago but i was an editor for a magazine for about 15 years or so so that was fun i've been an actor in la and i lived in hong kong and japan for a total 7 years i did acting in hong kong and some in japan as, as well and i played in a I played in a band in japan i mean i have tried pretty much every creative Pursuit there is out there, and I think it's taken me a real long time to be able to just call myself a creative. It was not something that was around me growing up. No one in my family was creative in terms of what their career was. I grew up kind of in the suburbs in in Florida, and I didn't know creativity could be a job, basically, and I think with public school, I mean I had a theater class and I took theater class, but there wasn't any visual necessarily art classes. And I was quite frustrated for a long time because I wasn't doing anything creative. Well, I was doing it on the side. Like a lot of creatives, maybe before they knew they were creative or that they could actually do creativity for a job, I was sketching and I was writing poetry and I was making films with my friends and doing you know, theater and things like that. But it was never something that I thought could be a job because I didn't really have anything in my life Or knew anyone that was making a living off a job. Growing up, I thought jobs were like, you know, bankers and accountants and doctors and lawyers and things like that. I think it's just taken many years of trial and error and trying out actually every single type of art there is. Not dance, I guess. I don't know. To kind of put it all together and to find
0: my way. Oh, I bet you could dance, Michael. I bet you could dance. (laughs) I just have a feeling, worst case, add whiskey and I bet you go, boy. I bet you go. What you're talking about just resonates a lot because I don't know about you, but I'm Gen X. I was born in 1970 and I'm a Midwest guy outside Chicago and coming of age in the 70s and 80s. And you know, when I look back and I think about that, I mean, we weren't using terms like creative and creator. The idea of being an artist, was so far removed because, of course, it felt like, well, you had to be rich to be an artist because you weren't going to make any money, right? And so, you know, being from the Midwest, you know, it's like this whole like kind of conservative fundamental idea of, well, get a real job. Right doctor lawyer accountant a ditch digger a steel worker electrician right. plumber get a real job artist was this career that was sort of this you know other world that felt if you weren't a trust fund baby or didn't have money like you you know you just couldn't do it because you there was no money in it right and it's been fascinating to see in the word artist seem to be pretty reductive around like oh, okay well you you paint or you sculpt or you you illustrate now you were a musician, you were probably referred to as a musician. Sure, you're an artist, so to speak, but you're a musician. But it feels like over the last 30 years, the term artist has become more broad. And so many people are calling themselves artists that aren't necessarily painting or drawing. Now we use these terms creative and creator. Because I guess we've just realized that these false walls that we've built up between, well, you're an artist, I'm a designer, they're a musician, they're an actor, they're just a creative photographer. But I don't know, we were much more rigorous about drawing those lines than we are now. Yeah, or just the concept of the
1: profession. You know what, I think it's more about probably the gateways into Mm. those professions. So the gateways that are, again, this is all just extremely general speaking, and I'll just speak for me and my upbringing. The doorways, the gateways into the profession of a creative profession weren't really shown to me or opened until I opened them myself and like it kicked them open, right? I think now those doorways are more visible and they're out there. And and I think they're also kind of trendy. I don't know, like artists, you know, growing up a in the same generation as you, I know we had our pop culture and our pop artists, but it wasn't like I looked at that artist and said, that's the job I want. I just like their music, right? And maybe Studio 54 or the Andy Warhol in and the factory and Basquiat and all of these people were at their prime in the East Village or something like that. But when you're in the suburbs of Florida, you don't know anything about that. That's just not, it, that was still counterculture, right? And also there's no internet then as well. So unless you're physically in that space like where those things were happening right look you're in paris when the artistic revolution was happening in in paris you just happened to be in the right place at the right time you know you're in the lower east side you know greenwich village in the 60s or something like that then you're kind of hip to it or whatever but everyone else isn't because there just wasn't that the broadcasting of it the doorways into those worlds weren't available to me at least I mean, I'm sure if I really wanted them, I probably could have found them, but they weren't readily available to a 17 year old public high school kid in the suburbs of Florida, right? And I think that that's different now with social media. Is just you see it a lot more,
0: so you feel the door is closer to you. I absolutely agree with everything you're saying, and as I'm listening, I'm thinking about tools, right? I mean, how are doors constructed? Well, they're constructed with tools, and. The truth is the tools of creativity have been democratized through technology over the last 30 years, 20 years. And so it has empowered people to embrace their inner artists and embrace their creativity. And then you have the conversion to a gig economy where companies aren't hiring and you don't work at one company anymore for 30 years, you're job hopping. And then suddenly, next thing you know, you have a platform. Technology is giving you a platform to communicate to the world at large. So if you have a talent or a passion or an interest, you can bring it to the world through the digital revolution. And so, it, you know, all these things connect in such an interesting way to create those doorways that you're talking about, empowering people to embrace their inner artist. Absolutely. I think it's a a renaissance. It's a beautiful time to be a
1: creative and to be an artist because of the different outlets that you have in order to express yourself and the tools, right? But what I find interesting is that, of course, there were tools in the 90s and in the 80s and the 70s because there were a lot of artists there, right? And artists that were making a, a living there. But what's also interesting is that I kind of appreciate now not having those because. I was creating organically, no matter what. And I think that that's the big lesson as I look back. Well, there's a lot of big lessons, but one of the lessons that I, I realize is it's not really about the platform. It's nice to have those platforms, but if you are creative and you're an artist, it's in you and it's gonna come out no matter what. Even if you're not in a, an environment where creativity becomes a pathway for you, you are creating. I go all the way back and... one of the first things I was doing when I was really young is I was making magazines, fake magazines out of just paper, you know, and taking twist ties and putting them together. And fast forward, I was a magazine editor for 15 years, right? And currently I'm putting together the finishing touches on my book. It's called Gen Exiled, Calling from the Analog Age. It's a collection of poems, sketches, Photos, artwork. Most of these were from my date books and my notebooks. I'm like just scanning pages from my old notebooks and date books and ticket stubs. I kept all the ticket stubs to concerts and, and like all the Absolutely. ephemera that I, that I kept. So <laughs> it's like my book is a scrapbook of life in the 90s. The reason why I'm finishing it is I started to look at all of these during the pandemic because I was bored and I needed something to do. And, you know, I'm a writer and I was like, I need a writing project. So I' sort of like in the year two thousand collected, gone through all of those notebooks that you know if you don't know what I'm talking about, you know before smartphones we used to keep track of and before Google Calendar and things like that, people would have like these annual planners at least I did, and it you know that's how I checked I kept track <laughs> I had, of yeah. my my days, right It was like a book that I kept with me I remember them well, yeah. So while I was in class or doing something like that, I was, I'm, always, I'm like a doodler. So I always, I can't listen to something like a lecture unless I'm actually also doodling at the same time. I need to kind of like, so my notebooks are just filled with all these doodles and all of that. So, and I realized, you know, okay, 2000, I started to collect all these things and scan them. And we had floppy disks back then. It was like almost, man, almost 500 floppy disks. Um, I guess they, they were the harder discs, and they're not the old school floppy floppy ones, but they were still the, like the harder plastic ones. It's like 500 of these discs, you know, to put all of these materials on this. And I <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> somehow I I created a version, and I went to Kinko's copies. We had a that that was the copier back back in the day. It was like the blockbuster of you know of copying Kinko's, and I made like one version, and it sort of survived from 2000 to, to 220 somewhere in my attic and I dusted it off and I'm in sitting in my sofa during the pandemic looking at all these you know poems that I'd essentially written in the late 80s and 90s and gathered and stuff in the 2000s like wow this is really interesting because first of all no one asked me to do that I didn't write these to induce FOMO in anybody or because I needed they were never written to be seen they were written because I had to I had this in me I had to make sense of the world I wasn't scrolling I wasn't on my phone You know, I was like in an analog world, but I still had to digest what was happening around me. And as a creative, I digested, made sense of the world through doodles and through art and through poetry and through just writing what I felt on pages. And But while I was doing that, I was like, man, I wish there was a way I could get this out to more people, right? Well, now there is, obviously, with social media and with all the digital tools, right? I wished that while I was creating that, but now... I'm thinking, I don't know if I would have done this if I had a phone back then. I don't know if I would have kept all of my ticket stubs. I don't know if I would have, you know, I used disposable cameras. You only had 12 shots in a disposable camera. I didn't have a camera, digital camera. I literally would go to the drugstore and buy a, a disposable camera or would I have been writing these poems? So I think that there's something to be said for that analog life and for the journaling and for the use of those things, but then also for the digital tool. And I'm always kind of floating between those two now. But one of the things that I remember was kind of the frustration, was being creative but not having that be tied to how I pay the rent. And I think that the nexus of those things occurred because I, I took a massive leap when I was 29, 2000, and I kind of got a one-way ticket to teach the singles class in Shanghai. And because I kind of drew a line in the sand when I was 29, turning 30. I said, you know what? From this day on, I'm not going to do anything unless it's a creative job. And I don't care what that creative job is. It could be writing an article. It could be acting. It could be playing music. It could be drawing. It could be anything. But I just, I have to do something creative. And I just kind of made it happen. I wound up going to Hong Kong and living in Hong Kong for three and a half years where I became an actor there and wound up working at a publishing company and became a managing editor. And I had art exhibitions and I kind of flourished as an artist during that time. But it really took this major leap of faith to kind of leave the States to go to a city I've never been before and to just start from scratch, knowing that innately that I'm a creative being. And I'm going to be doing these creative things no matter what. And unless I get them out of me, I'm going to be frustrated. And if I'm spending most of my life doing something for money that isn't creative it's not going to give me the space and the time for my creativity something has to give push came the shove and I decided for the longevity I needed to make a change and that move to basically Hong Kong and the reset changed everything for me
0: Well, kudos to you for having the courage to make that change. I mean, a lot of folks, by the time they're pushing 30, are sort of setting their waves or kind of risk averse. And, you know, change is always scary, let alone when you're changing countries, cultures, and languages. You know, you really jumped from the frying pan (laughs) into the fire, as they say. And kudos to you, man. I mean, you know, like that's how diamonds are made, right? Like under pressure. And under extreme heat and whatever, you know, it gets dangerous down there at times. And But you did it. And, you know, you clearly it changed your life forever in such a beautiful way.
1: Yeah. So I always advocate you have to make the leap. You have, and you have to take these calculated risks. And you first understand as a creative, what do you already bring to the table? And what can you leverage as a creative in order to succeed and to get to the next level? So, a lot of times people, I don't know, they'll ask. It's like, "Well, how did you do? How did you get to art jams?" And how are you making a living as a creative? And I think that that first step is really understanding what you have to offer and what you can do. And for a very specific example, the first time anyone paid me to do anything creative was a travel article that I wrote. While I was in China, because I needed money, while I was there, I hadn't figured that part out. I just figured out how to get there, like a Mm -hmm. three-month teaching English teaching job. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was an English teaching job for like three months, and it included a plane ticket. So I was like, okay, I'll I'll do that. And then I just didn't get on the plane to come back. I hadn't thought that far about how I would figure it out after that. This is crazy, but you know, it works out. But I knew I needed money. I knew that I could write, so I. Just picked up a lot of the local magazines that were at like the coffee shops and things like that. And I just started, you know, they had phone numbers then. So I would like call people or just go to the office in Shanghai, like knock on. And I'd already written these articles because I was traveling. So I wrote this article and I basically just beat the pavement and I went door to door to these three magazines and said, I have this travel article. Here it is. And I wound up selling it. So they bought it and they published it. And it was you know a couple of magazines and then China Daily picked it up. And that kind of gave me the money in order to continue my trying to make things work overseas, right? To not starve overseas. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Not be homeless overseas. But I'd never done a travel article. No one had told me how to do a travel article, how to pitch a travel article. You know, I didn't go online, YouTube to figure out, you know, how to pitch your art. I just, I just wrote it and started doing it. But that's the thing as well, where it takes these really specific, tangible steps as well. Right there's things that you like, you have to do, you have to put in the work. So if you're going to make this change or you want to do something, then you you have to do it. Like I I did it on spec. I just wrote the article and went out and found someone, you know, and sold it. So,
0: and that was the first time I got paid. I was like, wow, this is crazy. (laughs) People will actually pay me for my creative output, you know, And, and that is so liberating, isn't it? Because suddenly you realize you can be, the master of your domain and, you know, really embrace a sense of self-determination around, you know, your livelihood and not work for the man, so to speak, and carve out your own destiny and your own reality. I've talked to, you know, a lot of people over the years, right? And You know, we talk philosophize and solve life's problems and whatever. And, and I think it was, was it, Thoreau or Emerson, one of those guys talked about most people live lives of quiet desperation. And you know, the reality is, I think there are a lot of people out there in the world that are dissatisfied with the status quo or dissatisfied with their lives. And it's because largely, I think a lot of times, folks are scared to make change or they're scared to take those risks. That's the price of admission, right? I mean, if you want an extraordinary life, then you have to make extraordinary choices. I mean, like that's it and have that courage, take that risk and focus and execute and be faithful in that choice and faithful to yourself in that choice. And, you know, and that's why I love your story because you were at the sort of existential crossroads and you had the courage to take that big risk and it, you know, it revolutionized your life and here you are, man. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's
1: about this calculated risk, like I said before. And I don't think this, anyone makes a leap, well, you should just make the leap just kind of haphazardly. Again, you think about what do you already have that you can leverage? And this idea of this not being, not having to look externally, always looking externally for somebody to help you or for something to happen. If this just happened or if this person just helped me, if I just had this much money or if I had that job, Right? That you have to be in control of yourself and what do you do? Are you a good artist? I mean a visual artist. Do you know how to use this specific software? Are you can you articulate things well in writing? Are you good on camera? Do you communicate with people? Whatever it is, write it down. Write that list. Okay. And then from that list, focus on what you do well. What else do you have? What do you have to leverage? What physical things? When I went overseas to Hong Kong, I'd already had a master's degree. And I'd already lived in Japan for three and a half years. So it wasn't like I hadn't been overseas. I already had picked up like another Asian language. I was familiar with Asia. I kind of had this master's degree. So I felt like, okay, I could probably get a job there. Why did I choose Hong Kong? Well, it's a huge media market, right? There's like so much there. I didn't choose. I mean, I looked at a bunch of different places, you know, and Hong Kong has a very mature media market. They have a good art scene, right? So I put myself in the position where I have the best odds of succeeding. Yeah, it was a huge leap, but it was still, like I said, calculated. It is about odds. And you have to understand there's risk in everything. There's risk doing nothing. So to be afraid of risk is not the question because no matter what you do, there's risk. It's really the smart risk as a creative. And that starts with being confident in yourself and understanding what you bring to the table and focusing on those items, what you already have that you can leverage, and to combine all those into your your risk decision and not just make a,
0: a carefree risk decision, right? So I want to go back to Japan for a minute because I thought Japan, for, I was assuming, I guess, wrongly, that Japan came after China, but Japan came first. So on a certain level, the decision to go to Japan was even riskier than this decision to go to China because you'd spend three and a half years in Asia, in Japan, you'd learn the language, You had a bit of confidence, I think, probably getting on the plane to go to China that you probably didn't have when you got on the plane to go to Japan. I mean, what was the decision that took you to Japan? Like, what was that circumstance like?
1: Well, definitely, anytime you decide to pick up from the country that you live in and live in another country where you don't know the language, you don't know anybody, it's a big decision. I had just completed a master's degree at American University in International Communication, I did my undergraduate at Florida State, and I did communication there. But throughout this entire seven years of undergrad and graduate, I'd also minored in cultural anthropology. So I always had these kind of this, and again, not creative, right? Because I'm still on this, well, you go to college to get a degree, not in art, right? Because communication is probably the closest as a liberal arts, but also just kind of being a little multifaceted and multidimensional, very interested in culture. And I'm sort of like a bridge and an empath. So I again, looking back now, I can see why culture anthropology was, was interesting to me. I guess I figured, well, if you're going to communicate with someone, you got to know where they're coming from first. How can you communicate with someone if you don't know where they're coming from? Why am I studying communication? But I'm not studying the ability to understand the other person's point of view. And the other person's point know of view- your audience. Yeah, know your audience and that your audience comes, their point of view is constructed by their built environment, their physical environment, their cultural environment. And if you you don't understand those things, and you really can't communicate with someone effectively, if you're just trying to communicate to them through your own reference points, right? Which, for me, was a white guy from suburban Florida. So it, you know, like, uh, That's why I was interested in culture anthropology. Just expand my horizons and kind of get out of my bubble. I think that you know, (laughs) plainly speaking, after I got my master's degree, I had my debt. So I know I wanted to go overseas, and the jobs in Japan. It was like a consulting, training, and consulting job paid a lot more than any of the other jobs around in the world. So I probably just happened to choose that because. I could pay off my loans, you know, or I could at least not pay them yeah. off, but that took a long time. Right. I could actually right. like pay for them. So in a way that was practicality, but I also sort of looked as like, well, okay, Asia is a rising power. Well, Japan was the second largest economy at that point. Now it's the third, you know, I was like, well, that kind of makes sense. And I kind of looked at China and where the world was headed, you know, back even in the eighties the and nineties, you knew that Asia was a rising force. So it just kind of made sense, but I'd never been to Japan. I didn't speak the language. And <laughs> so overnight I was just kind of like thrown into it. And it was a pretty long interview process. And they did get the visa and everything this company did. So that was a lot better kind of set up than in Hong Kong, where I literally just showed up with not knowing anything or anyone and asked the taxi driver to take <laughs> me to, the, I was like, take me to the cheapest place in Hong Kong. And Japan was amazing. And I, I trained in Tokyo for like a week. And then there was, there was a, one teaching position on the entire West coast of Japan. So this is like a consulting company that basically works with Japanese professionals that uh, to teach them English and to do cultural preparation. Like, for example, it was like Mazda Motor Company was one of my clients, and they had just been bought by Ford. So I spent a lot of time working with the executives at Mazda, prepping them to like go to Detroit to do meetings. And they would ask me things like, what does it mean to be like, we're in the same ballpark? You know, I would explain, well, that means you know, you're negotiating, you're kind of close, you know, like that type of stuff. But... I got there and they said, hey, Michael, there's a spot that opened up on the west coast of Japan in a place called Izumo, which it's like the middle of Iowa in comparative. You know, it's just like a very rural, rural, rural place. And there has been one teacher that has been there for like eight years. And I guess he was leaving and I was next in line. And they said, do you want to take it? And I said, yeah. And, you know, because there was maybe hundreds of teachers and they're all in Tokyo and in the big cities. And there's this one position on the only one on the west coast. And I was like, I'll take it. So after a week in Japan, I'm on this plane and I land in this place and I have this house. It's like a three bedroom house with tatami mats and paper doors. And it's literally next to a rice paddy. I would, at night, the frogs were so loud. It was hard to sleep at first. I didn't speak the language. The house was empty. I didn't have furniture. And they like kind of just <laughs> dropped me off there. And they're like, good luck. <laughs> And I figured it out, you know. I learned my Japanese. I learned there's nothing
0: more empowering, right? I mean, like that's where real resilience and grit and the idea of being, you know, self determined. I mean, it's finding yourself in those situations where you realize, man, no, I am alone right now, and like I have to figure this out for myself. Like the no one is here to help me. (laughs) No one's coming to rescue me. And it's that level of of exposure and shall we say vulnerability. That arguably turns us into more interesting people, assuming we don't go crazy. You know,
1: Yeah, that's the risk is, you know, when you're kind of on the edge, you can fall. But then I also realize that once you fall, you also learn to fly. That's helped happened a lot as well. And the pandemic is a really good example. Learn to of fly
0: that. if you don't jump. Well, exactly right. Exactly.
1: Right. <laughs> well, sometimes sometimes you just fall. It's not as as cut and dry as you're on the edge of the cliff. And It's like, okay, here we go, one, two, you know. And then I look, at, like sometimes you just kind of get pushed off the cliff, and you weren't even expecting it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. A pandemic's a good example of that. I mean, how many the whole world suddenly, boom, you know, you're being told to stand down, go home, don't leave. Everybody's world was turned upside down, and you know, it turns out some people. For whatever reason, may be able to deal with that sort of abrupt face kind of change than others. And you know, there are all kinds of factors for that.
1: Well, and it's, the, I think the resiliency you need to survive that probably comes from going through a lot of those leaps. I think the more leaps, the more leaps of faith you make, the easier it becomes to deal with the curveballs that life throws at you. And whether we're talking about creativity, as a profession, or whether we're talking about real estate or finance, or you name it, it doesn't matter what profession you're in because life comes at you and will throw curveballs at you. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And that is the skill that you also need to think about in terms of that pivot and in terms of dealing out the with those curveballs, this force majeure. Like, there's no chapter in an MBA book about force majeure. Like, it's just about this is how you can succeed and you're going to do your SWOT analysis and look at your competitive analysis and you know how are you going to go get money and what's your cap table and like all of these things and but there's not a chapter on what happens if a close family member dies right before you're about to open a new location what happens if you have a your first child and you have two locations that you open and they were underperforming these are real examples and then your father passes away or you know like these things happen and you have to be as a creative, not, I mean, not as a creative, but just as a professional, be able to roll with these things. And I think the more that you're able to succeed in surviving through these, the easier they become. And that only that takes resilience. It, it takes moving forward and just keep moving and keep going forward.
0: Yeah, it tur- turns out, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the only thing we can really control, right, is our attitude. Mm-hmm. And life's going to happen, shit's going to hit the fan. And it is how you deal with it, that attitude that you bring to it. Uh, I was reminded the pandemic reminded me of that quote about uh, like it was the French philosopher Pascal who said, The root of all man's problems is his inability to sit alone in a room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're not conditioned to be like happy with our own company like a lot of people just hate being alone. They don't like their own company. And that's really interesting, right? I mean, no wonder like people had a hard time quarantining, you know, they don't, they don't like being alone. A lot of people don't like being alone. I love being alone. So I was happy, <laughs> you know, but it is interesting because we have to learn to, I think, be comfortable on our own skin, be comfortable with our own company and try to control our attitude when these difficult challenges come our way, because those are the only things that we can really control.
1: Mhm. And it's really up to you to turn those lemons in the lemonade. Scott, you can
0: <laughs> and add vodka. <laughs> That's what I do. Add vodka. It's like, okay, well, yeah, turn the lemon, turn the lemons in the lemonade, add vodka. That's how you get through. I hear our naysayers out there. Not everybody has vodka. Well, you know, drink the lemonade. This is so great. You get back, you somehow end up in DC. I mean, at what point do you start our champs? At what point do you say, you know what? Like, I want to take these life lessons and spread the good news. Yeah. Well, when I left Hong Kong,
1: I needed kind of an entree to get back to the States. And you know, I left Hong Kong because I sort of had was goal oriented. And this is another thing I think it's good for people to think about is if you're going to take a leap, what, why are you doing it? What's your goal, right? Do you have a goal for that leap? And mine was to kickstart my creative career career and to build the portfolio and the resume of being a creative so I can make that my career for the rest of my life. So after three and a half years, I felt like actually that I had done that. I became a managing editor. Like I said, I was in TV and film and lots of things and art exhibitions. So I was like, okay, I I kind of, I'm ready to kind of parlay this, right? I'm ready to take this to the next level. And I needed a, where to go? Now I go back to the States. I'm like kind of looking at my map of, okay, I got to go back to America. Where do I want to go? And since I was doing a lot of acting in, in Hong Kong, I thought, well, okay, well, you know, I'll go to LA. I've never lived in LA. And I'm a big proponent of getting rid of the what if. You had mentioned this a little bit earlier too. And one of those ifs was, of, you know, i always been acting and kind of acting adjacent sort of work. And I was like, well, since I was doing a lot of it in Hong Kong, maybe I'll go to LA and I'll focus on being an actor in LA and... If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, at least that's kind of like my first stage. So I wound up being in LA for two years and I didn't work out as an actor at all, but I did a lot of acting there. I wound up starting to make a living writing. And since I was actually paying the rent writing, then I was like, okay, I want to look for some writing jobs and I wound up getting this job in Washington, DC, which then brought me to Washington, DC. You could sort of look at that phase and say, well, I didn't become a working actor, so I failed. But I look at it like, I actually went into the industry, into the belly of the beast and worked and realized actually, this is not aligned with the type of creativity that I want. I actually, even the type of acting, like I love improv and I love live theater. So, although there's a lot of amazing improv and theater in LA, it's not necessarily, you know, it's a, an industry built on, on film and television on soundstage. Right. And I just didn't like the reality of what it was like to be a working actor in L.A. There's a lot of driving, a lot of castings and a lot of rejection, a lot of headshots. And, you know, and it was and I was making money writing. So I kind of went there, saw it, realized not for me, but I learned so much. And I'm going to focus on my writing and wound up getting this this job in Washington, D.C., as an executive editor for a very fancy lifestyle, luxury lifestyle magazine, which I did for six and a half years. And I kind of went from LA to DC in like three days. I was like, and the interview process took a couple of weeks, right? But when they were ready to pull the trigger, it was like literally Thursday in LA. And they're like, we need you this weekend. Can you just make it happen? And I said, yeah, sure. And I did because I, I didn't have like a full-time job there. I was just like living gig to gig. So I was able to just kind of go. And then And moved to D.C. And a pretty funny quick story was the last job that I had in L.A. I was working on West Wing as an extra. I was (laughs) Alan Alda, who was the president. I was one of his reoccurring staffers, which was a huge background job. The other background artists were super jealous of me. I was like got 0.2 seconds of screen time handing him a folder (laughs) one episode. And I got a lot of side eye. Why did he get to hand him the folder, you know? And then the last scene that I was filming was this live debate between Alan Alda and Jimmy Smith. I think it might've been the last season. And there was one of the actors there named Ron Silver that was in the show. And I was stationed next to him for like an entire day. So we spoke a little bit. This was on Thursday. I wound up starting my new job that weekend. And that weekend in DC was the Kennedy Center Honors which is like the Oscars in DC. is like the biggest thing with all the celebrities and they all come to the Kennedy Center Honors and on Sunday there's this brunch after the Kennedy Center Honors where all the invitees and all the attendees and all the muckety-mucks and the politicians and everyone come and they have this brunch at the Mandarin Oriental. And that was the first thing I did at my job. My publisher's taking me around the room. Now I'm in a tuxedo. Okay. <laughs> on a Sunday yeah where i was a background artist in la on thursday right and now i'm like in the room where it happened literally in, in dc and i'm walking around the room and the publisher introducing me to like all these celebs and politicians and stuff. hey this is a new editor of the magazine it's called washington life magazine and ron silver is there and i say oh, ron hey how you doing and he's like w- who are you and he looks at me and he's like wait are you I'm like, yeah, I'm the background guy. Remember me from Thursday? And he's and he laughed. He said, like, "What are you doing here?" I said, "Well, this is my new job now." <laughs> you know, like he's like, "All right, yeah." In three days, I went from you know background artist to high flying executive editor of a luxury lifestyle magazine. So I did that, like I said, for about six and a half, seven years. And I think when you're an editor for a magazine, you're like churning out twelve issues in a magazine. If it, you know, if you're younger, you don't know that it's like these things on paper with really cool, they're like glossy paper and they have photos and stories that you probably don't read. And when you're doing this and you're creating these 12 issues a year and you're just on deadline all the time, but you're also interviewing really incredible people, right? And I just, after six years of that, I just got so super motivated. I mean, how many, every gala I went to, someone's getting an award for something amazing they're doing, or the person I'm interviewing has a new restaurant, or their show is like blowing up, or their book is on the number one bestseller. And, and, you know, in the back of my head, I was kind of like, I think I can do this. I can do this too, right? Like, it's just about confidence. And, you know, I kind of challenged myself again. It's like, well, you think you're so smart? Why don't you come up with an idea, right? Why are you working for somebody else? Like, kind of put up or shut up in a way. Like, if if you think that you can do this, then do it. And well, okay, I need an idea. So, going back to these practical steps that you can take, you have to take these steps. So, I'd never taken a business class in my entire life. If you would have asked me what a L meant, I would have been like, I'd have no idea what any of this stuff meant a POS or any, give me a business term. I didn't know what it meant. And so, I was like at ground zero in terms of what it meant to start a business.
0: Do you know what MBA stands for, Michael? <laughs> I no, I I don't. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Mediocre but arrogant. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I digress. I'm not bitter. Go ahead. <laughs> no,
1: I, I have like a PhD in business now. After you know, have running a business yes. for ten years.
0: Yes, that's it. That's the best way to get your learnings. Yes. You know, I audited the second year MBA
1: class at American University. I was back in DC. It was my university, so they allowed you to take free classes as an audit. So, you know, again. What do you have at your disposal that you can leverage? It goes back to that lesson as well. What did I have? I had this degree. How can I leverage it? I can go and take a free class. I can take an MBA class at night. And I did. So I kind of started to learn that and what it meant to do a SWOT analysis and do all those things that you need to do in order to start a business, right? But it didn't just fall on my lap. I went out there and figured out I need to take this class. I need to learn. How am I going to learn? I don't have a lot of money. Hey, I can take this class for free. So I leveraged what I had. And Another thing that I've sort of learned over the years is the beauty and power of serendipity. Scott, like serendipity is an amazing thing and it will come into play in your life. And the thing, maybe something happens today. You're listening to this while you're listening to this or right after you listen to this or this weekend, something that could happen to you might change the, the trajectory of your life in 10 years. But you don't know. And when it does, you're going to look back and connect the dots be like, oh my God, I, I see it now. I see how it's all connected, but you don't see that now. And if you're not making the moves, if you're not getting out and putting yourself out there, you're not going to kind of create those dots that need to be connected. So when I started to go through these mental Rolodex, right, of ideas, I actually remembered Hong Kong and a lady that had an art gallery that would let people come in at night and paint and drink. This was before Paint and Sip, or anything, you know, and she called it art jamming. And I was like, okay, I changed the name, put a Z on it. And anyone in China is mad at me because I I took a business name and idea and, and changed the name. Well, <laughs> you
0: know. By the way, China is the last place that should be bitter about you counterfeiting <laughs> <Right>. anything. So, <laughs>
1: right. When well, you go get a, like a coffee at Star Brokers or whatever they call it, you know, there. <laughs> Yeah, they don't get to talk about intellectual property, but I did add the Z to the end and, and changed it. That's right, Americanized it. Again, then I started to take the leap. Although I was still at a full time job, being an executive editor at a magazine, did a little pop up, a paint party pop up on the weekend. I rented out a space got a gallery, a Corcoran Gallery. I was a magazine editor for this fancy magazine. I knew everyone. I knew all the editors. I knew all the people that knew the venue. So I leveraged what I had. I rented the space out for a weekend. I got some of the restaurant owners that I had interviewed to donate me some food and some of the sponsors from the parties that we had. Heineken gave us the beer, you know, and I just had enough money to buy some canvas and we got a friend that was a DJ and DJed it and sold it out, right? And it was awesome. We did a, a full weekend of like paint parties and people were like, this is amazing. No one had ever done this. And again, before kind of paint and sip was paint and sip, And I said, I think I'm on to something. And I did these paint parties kind of as a side gig for two years while I still worked at the magazine. So it got to the point where we were selling them out and people wanted more of them. And I was tired of kind of packing in my car and doing all these things. It's like these pop ups. So I'm like, I need a space. And I wound up getting a one year lease, quitting my full time job and moving into retail. And we were in retail for eight years with liquor licenses. We had up to three locations and we had a van where we, you know, we did pop-up events and things like that. And then we were shut down overnight in March, 2020.
0: Just like that. People talk about 80, 90% of businesses fail. And you know, the reality is businesses is so hard. You could do everything right. You could have the best luck, the most serendipity, do everything right. And wham, a pandemic comes out of nowhere and sucker punches you. Right. But yet you didn't flinch. I mean, you, you obviously uh, uh, pivoted, you adjusted, you made changes, you made the tough choices that you had to make to survive. So how did you adapt? How did you pivot? How did you survive, Michael? The one thing that's really helped
1: me survive as a business owner, and again, Arch James is my first business, over the past decade is being mission focused. Understanding that our mission is to make the world a more creative place. We do that two ways providing artists jobs and letting them do what they do best, and getting people engaged in art. How we enabled that, how we made that happen changes, right? It was a pop-up, and then it was a retail business, and then it was a bar, and now, you know, it's virtual classes, and you know what? It's going to continue to change, but our mission stays the same. So a big lesson that I've also learned as a business owner and a creative, find your mission, because your mission is your north star you're on a ship, you're a captain of the ship, you're on this ocean called Earth in this journey of entrepreneurship, your North Star will navigate you through everything, off the rocks, off the storms, through the sharks, through the scurvy or whatever happens, you know, when you're on a ship at sea. But the North Star will guide you. Find your mission. That is more important than how you deliver that mission because the medium will change. And so when that happened, in many ways, Scott, I was happy. I wasn't happy that it was a pandemic. From a strictly business owner standpoint, I was burned out. I was burned out of retail, of having locations. I'm a creative, so running bars and you know having up to 30 employees and all of this was great, but I was it really started to, to wear on me. And it also started to disconnect me from my art as an artist, as and the books that I'm writing and the art that I'm doing and the other creative projects, right? Because when I'm in my business, I'm not necessarily being creative, although I'm helping creatives by providing artists jobs, right? So again, the pandemic is horrible, but in many ways, it offered a way out that I might not have had before or the unwinding of the physical brick and mortar retail would have been a lot more difficult it's getting out of leases and things it was and you know in terms of the pivot again it goes back to the, this thing that i've mentioned before what do you already have that you can leverage you don't need something from uh, external right so yeah our studios were closed down it was the busiest time of the year we have all these private events like march and april is like go to time and all these you know, bachelorette parties and kids parties and corporate team building events and cherry blossoms like every weekend is just booked, booked, booked. Every single one of those parties had a deposit. So not only were we closed and weren't having any business coming in, I probably had 30 to 40 parties that were booked and everyone's asking for their deposit back. So money's going out the door. No money is coming in. And so what do you do? What do you do as a business owner? Well, you think, okay, what do I have? I have Not only that, since it's the busiest time, I'm also double inventoried during that time. You don't want to run out of canvas and beer and wine during your busiest time. So instead of being like one month stocked up, I'm two months. So now I'm sitting on double inventory. You know, it's just like everything that is like, the plus there's a pandemic, right? So I'm like, great, all right. Well, I have the stuff, the inventory. So I actually don't have to spend any more money on inventory. I have one teacher that stuck with me. All the other teachers, you know, because we didn't necessarily have any, any work. So it was better for them to kind of kind of go on un- unemployment or whatever. And I had one artist that stuck with me and I said, I think I can figure out how to do these virtual classes. There's this thing called Zoom, which I didn't know about or, and we never did any of this, right? And we're going to figure it out. And my bet was and and by the way, I had all the paints and the brushes and like carry out bags. So I'm like, you know what, people can come and like pick up doggy bags because I noticed that the the restaurants were kind of staying alive by doing takeout orders. So I'm like, we can do takeout. People can just come and pick it up. It would just focus on the DC market. So uh, let's pivot. And if I can take, let's see, I have 40 of these private events that are already booked. If I can get 20% of them or 30% of them if I can convert them to my virtual offering, then I'm not going to lose the deposit and I might be able to start to bring some money in and hopefully bridge maybe these three or four months. There's some chatter about grants and help and funding and all this stuff, but you know that's still in March, that's still three months away, four months away. So it's about, again, what do you have that you can leverage? So these lessons that I sort of picked up and learned through these, these leaps that I had been making to Japan or to Hong Kong or to LA are now coming to fruition. Because I'm realizing that I can survive this by being smart, by but using the stuff that I already have. And so once we started doing it, the momentum began. And then we started to have these groups ask, oh, my team members are at home and one's in New York and one's in California. So can you just ship this stuff? And he says, yeah, sure, no problem. I don't know. I've never shipped anything, you know. And again, you leap and learn to fly. So much of what I've learned and what our jams is, been able to do is the customer has come to us and asked, "Can you do this?" And we we figured out a way to do it, it wasn't part of the original business plan, right? And so we said, "Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll drop ship." And I figured out the difference between FedEx and UPS, and you know, I did like a crash course in drop shipping, and then we started to do more of it. And I, you know, I'm like literally squeezing paint into like condiment cups because we had, you know, when you have a retail location, you're buying like five gallon things of paint. But when you're shipping out, they have to be an individual thing. So I'm like, how do I get my five gallon paint? So I got these like restaurant containers. I'm like, have like a line. My son was seven years old. I'd bring him to the studio with me and have him just squeeze the bottles to do these condiment things. I'm like, just short term. So I'm like, while we're doing this, I'm also reinventing the way to ship. And one day I'm eating pizza. I ate a lot of pizza over the you know, the pandemic. And I, I guess I told my wife, I said, well, this is research, honey. I'm researching, I'm researching. And I'm having the box and I'm eating this pizza. And I'm like, wow, actually a box is a really good way to send materials. It's sturdy. It's about the right size. I can fit my eight by 10 canvas in there. And so I was like, okay. And then we also had a lot of people that we were shipping to you know, the thing is, we're, people that are taking Art Jam's classes are just normal people. They're not artists, right? Although they're creative, and I'm, they're amazing, some amazing paintings get created at, at our, our classes, but they're not like a professional artist, right? So they typically don't have easels at their house. So we started to get a lot of these questions like, hey, I don't need an easel. And I'm like, I don't want to have to like pack up and ship easels. So I actually took an X-Acto knife and then my pizza box, and I created like this insert within the pizza box, out of the pizza box, and I started to look for custom box makers, And created this prototype that literally had cheese stains on it. And I would ship them (laughs) to custom box makers. And I was like, hey, I got this crazy idea for this art box that converts into an easel. And this is my concept. Sorry about the cheese. Can you kind of help me? And I found this box maker in Connecticut that was like, this is really cool. I think my box maker that works in CAD would like really like to do this. He's probably tired of doing, you know, Mountain Dew displays or something like that. So I found this one box maker that had a creative thinking box maker that was like this is the coolest project i want to do this and they helped me kind of refine that and we created this box and we started you know ecom shipping it and we had to change everything over overnight but we survived <laughs> and now we're facing you know the reverse pivot so how do we go back into the real world and without a retail location with these kind of mobile events and almost like back full circle to where we were when we started but continuing the virtual because the virtual is not going away you know and it also we went from local to national to international so you know we've shipped boxes to South America to Europe to Asia and that's also been a beautiful thing is that the retail we were just focused in the DC area but now you know we've gone from regional to international and I'm really excited about being able to expose more people to art and Continue to evolve. We're working with a group right now to have art jams, art classes in the metaverse. Right? I don't think that we're going to solely be in the metaverse, but we're going to have it there, and we're going to offer virtual classes and we're going to do some in-person stuff too. And but we're still the same mission. It's still the same mission, and
0: we're just going to continue to you know innovate. How many art boxes have you shipped to date? How many boxes are you shipping? Well, how many boxes have you shipped? How many boxes are you shipping a month? And what's the farthest place you've ever shipped a box? Right.
1: So we've shipped about five thousand art boxes since we began. So we're averaging close to, you know, three hundred you know, art boxes. And typically each art box also comes with an art class. If you bought an art box, you've probably also bought an art class as well. I think the farthest is probably either Argentina korea i think the the most challenging was ireland why why ireland why was it so challenging it's just like the duty import stuff or you know like i guess maybe the eu maybe it's just the the eu and yeah that's so fascinating yeah again just learning when someone's like well you know we got you know we have 10 staff in in ireland can you get the boxes there i'm like yeah sure no problem no problem and then you realize, oh gosh, I, I want to buy a subscription for my kids, man. I mean, I think they would just love it. Yeah, we do like drawing classes, one on one with drawing classes with kids, and the box is fun. It comes with a
0: fake mustache as well, so that's always a always a perk. <laughs> <laughs> I think my son already has one, but he'd like another. I mean, that's such a beautiful story, Michael. I mean, your story is just so so awesome. You know, and part of the reason why, like, I love it and I think it's so important is because it reminds me of a story that I like to to tell. I don't know if you know uh, the name Gordon McKenzie, but Gordon was the chief creative officer for Hallmark Cards for years. He's not with us anymore, but he had written a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. I highly recommend it. Uh, essentially, the book is about how do you maintain your creative uh, and artistic integrity when you work within a corporate environment. I mean, he worked in a huge corporate environment at Hallmark Cards, right? But he's an artist, right? So, but one of the things that he did to kind of give back and kind of serve his larger community is that, of course, he would go and talk to school kids all over his community and maybe even the country. And he would talk to all grades. There's this poignant story in the book where he talks about how he always begins his talks at schools with the same question. And that question is, who here is an artist? And of course, in kindergarten, every kid raises their hand, right? And in first grade, two thirds of the kid raise their hand. And he was saying by third grade, when he asked who here's an artist, you get one kid in the back, you know, sheepishly raising their hand going like, yeah, I'm an artist. And it's such a poignant and, and bittersweet and sad kind of story because, you know, what are we doing to squeeze out? This clearly inborn, innate desire to create and be an artist. And we're all, it's all in us, it's all there. And somehow, some way, we've designed a system that's, you know, suppresses it and squeezes it out of us or cons us into thinking that it's not legitimate. And your work is so critical to helping people realize that their artistic expression is legitimate, that there is an artist in all of us. And they just, you know, we just need a Pied Piper to sort of lead us down the merry way towards our artistic dreams. And you guys are providing that secret sauce to to sort of help folks, you know, find some joy in art and, you know, and hats off to you, brother. You're doing God's work, my friend. <laughs> Picasso had this great quote that relates to what you're saying.
1: It says Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. And that's, again, going back to the mission of Art Jams, make the world a more creative place. And like I said, give jobs to artists. Proper jobs, not gig economy jobs. And let them think about the future. Let them save for the future. Help them build financial literacy. Under understand what a four hundred one k plan is and how to invest their money, and not have to jump from grant to grant or gig from gig, gig to gig. But the second part is getting people. Now you said the secret sauce, and I say this a lot. We don't own the patent to the joy of creativity because that's already in us. I mean, what was the first thing people did? And I say people like humans once we started gathering in caves after you know the big day, the big hunt. You come around and you're in the cave and the campfire and you you paint it on the wall, right? The original Art Jams is cave art. Because why? Because that's in us. It's what makes us human. And at Art Jams, all we do is we get the horse to water, you know, and we didn't invent water and we didn't invent the fact that water tastes really good when you're thirsty. We just got you to, <laughs> we, we handed you a, a glass of water and told you how to help drink it, you know. I think that's really important, especially since one of the reasons why and I think this really aligns with not real art. And why I'm really excited that we're, we're speaking, one of the reasons why we get divided from creativity and art is because of kind of the built environment starts to, you know, silo us into these professional jobs and stuff like that and moves us away from art. But innately, we are all creative beings. And it's kind of, I use this like analogy, it's like basketball, man. What percentage of the population is going to get a scholarship in in college to play basketball and what percentage is going to play professionally NBA, right? A very, very, very small percentage. But it doesn't mean you can't grab a basketball and go out in the backyard and shoot some hoops with your friends and have a good time, right? No one is saying, hey, you can't touch that basketball. You're not going to have a scholarship.
0: Yeah, that's such a poignant point. And yet, kids are encouraged to play basketball their whole lives, and it's built into the system. Whereas art and creativity is often extracted and taken out of the system, what kind of world would we live in if from kindergarten to 12th grade, not only did we learn the academic fundamentals of reading, writing, and arithmetic and science, but we really were dedicated to two more things. Foreign language being one big believer that it'd be a much more interesting country and, and place if we were teaching our kids to speak a second or third language from K through 12. But even more to the point, what if we were teaching design thinking, creative thinking, and art appreciation and art making through K through 12? What kind of quality of life would we be living in if people were empowered to exercise those muscles their whole lives, not as an elective? but as a requirement to build a more interesting, just and beautiful world.
1: We need more of art in the world. And for adults that have, you know, well, that train has already left the station and they can't go back and like re-educate themselves as a kid, but they still have this innate source of joy with creativity that if you get them to put brush to canvas, it reconnects them to that source and it breaks through the walls and the conditioning. And it, and I even tell the accountants that come to our class, it's okay. You can put drafting tape on the canvas and, and do like a Mondrian with very straight lines. You know, art isn't about creating like this perfect bowl of fruit with light and shadow, right? And, you know, once you kind of talk people off the edge, the ones that are like, I'm not creative. I haven't painted since kindergarten, you know, and you're like, it doesn't matter, right? It also goes back to what you mentioned before about how it was hard for people to just be by themselves over the pandemic is because in the West we're really conditioned to do, doing, 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 doing. And when you're painting, you're actually in flow. You're in a state of flow and you learn. And and that's where the joy and the peace comes from because you've actually put your brain on the sofa for a little bit and you're only focused on one thing. You're not scrolling on your phone. And I think that reconnecting people to flow as Well, as the you know, that comes hand in hand with creativity once you're starting to paint, you're in in flow, is an important therapeutic. The special sauce is innate the creativity that's innate in all of this, but that's also kind of the therapeutic value you get from being in a state of flow. We you don't really pitch it that way, it's like art jams, it's good for your mental health. It's not really a good marketing slogan, but really, it is
0: (laughs) (laughs) art jams improve your flow. (laughs) Well, because, you know, I mean, we, this gets in, this is a whole nother podcast, but like it gets into tapping into your intuition and into your feelings, which we live in a culture where we're supposed to be rational and be in our heads and know what we think. And we do a horrible job of knowing how we feel. And art and that flow that you're talking about being creative is much, if not more so, an exercise in tapping into one's feelings and one's intuition than it is to their thoughts and their intellectual prowess. You know, these things kind of can kind of conflict. But, man, I'll tell you what, the world's a better place with art jams in it, brother. And the art box it's in a and, better
1: place because of what you're doing, too. I really. Oh, appreciate thank
0: it. you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, we're well, as we said, we share the same values. We're in this together. I mean, personally, my whole thing is that, you know, part of the reasons why artists struggle to make a living is because we have underdeveloped the mass market for art. I mean, there's supply its a supply and demand problem. Like, There's tons of supply and you're never going to control supply because there's always going to be artists making art. But the thing that we need to do overturn, and it's a generational problem. But like we have to 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 invest in developing the demand, the demand yeah. side, and that's in the mass market. In my view, the one percent, you know, elite world of multi million dollar art auctions. I mean, that's its own thing. That's great. But the wall art, wall print category at Target, at Bed Bath & Beyond, at Walmart, that is a $6 billion category. And that is a $6 billion category because people need things to hang on their walls and they don't feel empowered to go to an artist and buy original piece of art, but they'll go to Target and spend a hundred bucks on a mass produced print. If organizations like ours, mine and yours, can start to empower just the average person to feel comfortable in their own skin and mind around art. And it's like, you know, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. You know what you like, go find it. You like the color red, go find an artist that loves red too, and buy their painting. (laughs) You know, 200 years ago, it was very common for a household to have twenty to thirty works of art you know in it, and now you know we live in a world where unfortunately art has somehow been positioned as a luxury for the rich and uh, or an economic asset that meant to be traded like a commodity you know for economic gain. It can be all those things too, I guess, but for you and I and for the most of the folks out there for you know I think art is a spiritual experience. And if you want to find, if you want to feed your spirit, art is a wonderful way to feed your spirit. That's part of how we start changing the conversation to help empower people to go buy some art from a real working artist for 500 bucks.
1: You know, Definitely. And I think that if you are engaged in creating art, you also develop an appreciation for the tools and the paint and the canvas, but then also an appreciation for how challenging it is. An appreciation for the artist. And then if you pair that with the fact that there's a local artist that's teaching you that, and that our local artist is super talented and nice, and you realize two things. You appreciate art. That art is definitely not easy to do. But then also, there's a lot of amazing, local, talented artists that you can collect art from, right? And that you can follow. And they're right there. They're in every city, you know? And I think Art 100%. Jam offers a way to kind of guy kind of take them I tell my artists promote your work I right? tell them to bring in business cards they do a class it's like these are like 50 people from you know this XYZ law firm they can afford your art right like bring a card in tell them about your website tell them about your Instagram page like use this as a way to help sell your art because you're in the best possible place where they're creating they're learning from you they're getting to know you and they probably have the budget to afford it right so, you know, Art Jams is kind of sneaky that way as well. And that's also part of how we make the world a more creative place is just getting people to appreciate art by doing art and getting them yep. to actually interact with artists. And the other side, artists typically don't interact with, with people, right? They're either in the studio <laughs> or they're on their projects. Yeah. And I think it's really good for artists, our, my team of artists as well, to get them out of maybe their head sometimes and around
0: people. And I think it helps influence their art as well. So I think it works all the way around. Yeah, 100%. 100%. You know, it's one of those things that, I don't know, I do, you know, earlier I was talking about you doing God's work. I mean, you know, I think we are doing God's work, man. I mean, you know, art feeds the soul. We believe that can make the world a better place. And and we see it time and time again. And Michael, you're, you're a personification of that. Art Jams is a personification of that. Art Box is a personification of that. I am so grateful for your time today, my friend. Thank you for coming through. Where can people find you online? How can people support you? Scott, thank you so much for this space and for letting
1: me talk about creativity. I really enjoyed it today. And I wish you the best with what you're doing and all the guests that you have and everybody out there that is in the creative industry, in the creative field, keep doing what you're doing. The world needs more art, absolutely. And the tools that are out there are amazing right now. It is a renaissance for creatives. So take advantage of it. You can find Art Jams at A-R-T-J-A-M-Z on all of the usual suspects with uh, social media. You can find my book, Gen Exiled. That's Gen X. I-L-E-D, e d. Gen is on Instagram as well.
0: I want an autograph copy, Michael. I'm just putting my order in right now. So, uh, and I interrupted you. So so tell us where we can get the book. Uh, the 90s are so hot right now, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll let you
1: know when it drops. So in the design okay. phase right now, but it is written, which is, th- it's 300 pages. So that's a well, lot. That's a heavy lift. Yeah, totally. On, yeah. And my artistic handle is not-for-profit. That's K-N-O-T for profit as in prophecy, art that predicts the future. So that's a whole other conversation we can have that a lot of the art that I did in the 80s and 90s talk about flow. Once you get into flow, a lot of the stuff, I'm an outsider artist, never took an art class in my life. And it's very cartoonish, but a lot of the sort of things that I created and painted have actually come to fruition. So it kind of freaks me out sometimes. And you can kind of look at the art and decide for yourself if those prophecies that I put into my art have
0: come true or not. Well, and that points to the fact that, you know, artists are seers. They're like magicians because, you know, they literally do pull rabbits out of hats and make things appear out of no, out of nothing. That's the beauty and the power of what artists do in the world. These governments and companies that want to solve existential problems of, of our planet. You know what? Talk to artists. They'll give you some novel solutions. Anyway, it is a wonderful afternoon, Michael, to be here with you today. Thank you for coming through. Will you make me a promise? Will you come back? I would love to. Once the book
1: drops, we can talk about the grungy '90s and creativity ah. in an analog age. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, our generations—you know—we got to see it, man. We saw the the evolution from. The rotary dial phone with the long curly cord. I remember when call waiting, well, before call waiting, I remember when the push button phone, it was like push button phones. These are so cool. I don't have to go zing, zing, zing and then call waiting and you know literally MTV I remember running home after school calling my cable television network and saying I want my MTV
1: (laughs) (laughs) but it's funny you mentioned the cord because when I was thinking about a cover for the book I'm like what's like what's an iconic thing you know yeah I remembered the long cord you know it had the really long cord I'd have to like go behind a wall or into my room and the cord would be stretching in a room and I'd kind of be wrapped around it. So on the cover of the book, it has, you know, gen exile, the big X. And there's like a phone cord wrapped around the leg of the X because, you know, with the phone just lying there with an empty speech bubble, because that's another thing about
0: gen X is we're a little lost. <laughs> that wrapping of the phone cord that we did. That was my first introduction to bondage.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Like, it's not so bad.
0: What the hell? I kind of like being tied up. Well, that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast for another day. Michael, <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, you're the best. I'm so grateful to know you. You know, I want to, you know, I'm going to talk to you offline about some collaborations, things that we might be able to do together over here, out here on the uh, West coast. But uh, in the meantime, brother, have a great night. And thanks for coming through. Thanks,
1: Scott. I really appreciate the time. Keep being creative.
0: Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Pajot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.